Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians, towards the very end, the very last part of 1 Thessalonians, but we still have the entirety of the second book of Thessalonians to go through as we're con continuing our series here. Uh, but as Paul has emphasized, the gospel is super important to transform the lives of uh, people in the church. In fact, it is a church filled with people who have been transformed by God. And knowing how that transformation takes place and being able to communicate it is super important. And that's why we spend a minute or so every Sunday morning looking at our cold fingers juggling green reindeers to remind us that as we talk about the truth of Christianity to our friends and families, why they say, why do you believe this? The message starts out with cold fingers or that idea that God created all things but we are fallen, so creation and fall. The juggling reminds us to mention God's justice. When God created and when we fell, God judged us. There is a penalty, a, a ransom on us that must be paid if we're to be made right with God. And the G, or uh, the green represents grace. That's the whole message of Jesus Christ. His, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again, all is built up into that green or grace. And then lastly, we have reindeer to remind us that even though we have this message of salvation, people need to respond to it. Just like Jesus mentioned more than once when he presented the truth of himself, he asked the crowd, do you believe this? And so it is important to ask for a response. What is your response to the truth of creation, fall, judgment, and grace? What is your response? So Paul has built his ministry on this. He has built the church on this. And the church at Thessaloniki, as well as the church in Pueblo, the whole church in Pueblo, are built upon this foundation of truth, the truth of the gospel. Before we get to the passage we're looking at today in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through the end of the book 28, I have a warning for you. And this warning needs to be heeded and listened to. I cannot stress enough that this warning will do you well the rest of your Christian life. You are not saved into a relationship with God based on what you do and don't do. It is not based on merit. It is not based on obedience to the law. You could not obey the law. You have not obeyed the law. When you break one of the laws, God says, you've broken them all. He says, my standard for a relationship with me is absolute, pure holiness from your very first breath to your last. And guess what? None of humankind have ever lived like that. Ever. You are not as good as you think you are in relationship to the law. You are a sinner in relationship to the law, and thus you deserve punishment. And there is nothing you can do about that. There is no law you can obey. There is no demand you can obey. There is no rule to follow. You can't do it. There is tension in Christianity because God does give us laws. He gives us the Ten Commandments boiled down to... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he does expect obedience. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so there is this tension in the Christian life 
that the reformers during the 15 and 1600s boiled down to this phrase, faith alone saves. Faith alone saves. But faith is never alone when it does save. Saving faith always identifies with obedience and keeping God's commandments. But you're not saved because of that. You're saved by faith alone, but that saving faith is never alone. And so we're coming to a portion of Scripture that has uh, guideline after guideline, well, law after law after law after law, things that you must do in your Christian life. So please remember as we approach these, that we're approaching it already in a relationship with God, not to earn it, not to look at ourselves and go, oh, I'm doing this a lot better than so-and-so is doing it. God doesn't want a relationship in the church like that. He wants a relationship in the church based on what? It's one simple four-letter word. Love, love, love. And so when you start to feel guilty that you're not doing it enough, or you start looking at other people and judging them, oh, they're not doing that enough, you need to go back to the very basics. Love leads and guides me and determines my relationship with one another. It is love-based. And two things to help us remind us of that. In John chapter 8, verse 36, it says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You are free from relating to God based on obedience. Jesus Christ did that on your behalf. He made you free in that relationship. He's not requiring you to pay any debt. It is absolutely a free gift of salvation. Do you believe it? Is the question that God asks when you are faced with it. And then secondly, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. He's talking about Jesus Christ has now been made known apart from the law. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you want to be righteous, if you want to be holy, if you want to be set apart for God's use, if you want to be a champion in his kingdom, if you want a relationship with him, it's based on faith, not works. So even though we're talking a lot about a lot of little details today, remind yourselves, my relationship is safe with God because my relationship is not based on obedience, but on did Christ accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. Yes, he did. Your relationship is safe. Now, show that you have a relationship. So these are uh, indicators, maybe about how strong your relationship is, how mature your relationship is, how connected you are in that relationship. But it's not, you don't follow these in order to have a relationship with God. It demonstrates that you have a relationship with God. So let's get into this, and there are a lot of them, so we're just going to be talking about it and moving on to the next one, and some of them are going to be very familiar to you, especially if you've read a lot of Paul's writings, because Paul doesn't repeat himself, but he emphasizes things that are super important for every church to know and understand. So let's get started. In verse 12 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in high regard with love, or in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. 
Paul says to the church in Thessaloniki, the whole church, a group just like us gathered together, that you have a role with the person and people who stand up in front of you. That role starts with love and respect. That role is defined by a relationship of honoring one another. And there can be a tendency, because I have been exactly where you are, to be a vocal critic of how things are done, who's doing it, how fast it's being done, how fast it's not being done, how money is spent, how money is not spent, the color of carpet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It can overwhelm you the number of things that you can be critical about when one of the Lord's servants, regardless of the role, is trying to serve and minister to you. So much so that Paul says there's something here that you need to know about. You need to know that those who serve God in that capacity should be held in high regard and honored. Not put on a pedestal, not worshipped, and not obeyed. You obey God. God is the one we follow our commands from, not man. But he says very clearly a few things here. He says, first, acknowledge those who work hard among you. When you see someone who is helping out in the parking lot with the safety team, thank them. When you see someone who's been helping out in the nursery, thank them. When you see someone who has cleaned or helped move things or helped out, thank them. If you see someone who's starting a ministry or has been in ministry a long time, teaching a Sunday school class or a Bible study or a home group, thank them. That's all that Paul is saying is, hey, when you recognize that, acknowledge it. Say thanks to them. Say, you know, maybe I can be involved. I know that's a huge step because you're just volunteering but maybe that might be a great conversation starter. That first principle, say thank you. Acknowledge those who work among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. So Paul does say there's going to be times in that relationship with the person who is running a ministry might have to say, that's really not the right attitude to bring. That really is not really the right position to hold. Scripture teaches us this, and it's the responsibility of both parties one, to speak the truth in love, and two, to respond not with aggression or not with, hey, you're not my daddy, you can't tell me what to do, I'll keep you at arm's length, but you have a responsibility to accept that admonishment. And admonishment is uh, kind of a fancy word for uh, being corrected, being corrected. Um, I will admit that I need to be corrected. And there's probably no area in my life that is perfect and without need of correction, admonishment, challenge, change, a better understanding of something, a better way of responding to something. Oh, I need that in spades. I need so much correction. I need so much learning at the feet of Jesus how to love those that I have already judged unlovable and respect those who haven't earned respect, but yet that is their role in my life, to be respected. So, we're to receive that and hold them in high regard, in love, because of their work, and live in peace with each other. That broad, hey, you wanna know how to get along in a church filled with 100 different personalities and 100 different views and 100 different opinions? You do it by loving one another. And that love means to be patient, to be gentle, to be kind, to be 
quick to hear and slow to speak. It's to put those principles of, if this was Jesus I was relating to, standing right in front of me, how would I treat him? Would I hold open the door? Yeah. Would I give him my seat? Yeah. Would I be upset if he sat in my row? Absolutely not. I'd be proud and honored if he sat in my row. Oh, I should be just that same way with a visitor or a guest who sits in my row. Imagine that mentality running through your veins. My parking spot. No. But someone has used it. Awesome. I'm glad they're here. So that principle of loving one another is throughout every one of the relationships that we have. The second thing, rules for living with one another in verse 14 and 15 says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, I love how he combines everyone in this, all of you, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. A lot of things there in those two simple verses about how to interact with one another. How to build a relationship, how to maintain that relationship, and how to improve upon that relationship. And this works not just in the context of someone you might see once a week in church, but this works in the context of your marriage. This works in the context of you and your parents. This works in every relationship context there is. Beautiful, broad strokes of God's truth to apply to every area of our life, every relationship. And it starts with Paul urging us. This is Paul pleading with you. This is the warning of you have got to listen to this advice because it will do you well. And it's more than advice. It's God's wisdom for us. And he says, first and foremost, warn those who are idle and disruptive. So if there are individuals who are lazy, not doing a thing, tell them to get off their butt and start doing something. If there is someone who sits around and just complains all day, they're being disruptive, they're trying to uh, kind of put a wedge in between you and someone else or a relationship, tell them to stop. I want nothing to do with that. No, I'm not going to listen to you talk bad about that person because all you're doing is causing strife and disruption. So stop it. And Paul says, I urge you to work with those kind of people and tell them, hey, stop it. And I'll tell you, if you say that enough to that person, they'll either stop being your friend, which you didn't need their influence anyway, or they will not talk about that when they're around you. I can't tell you the number of times I've had, not relationships, but in a work environment, and they start telling dirty jokes, and I say, hey, I'm a Christian, I don't want to hear that. And so I'll get up and move. And the next time they're around, they start telling a dirty joke. I'm, I, don't, I don't like swearing, so please don't swear around me. Eventually, eventually, I have seen that people usually accommodate that. They'll usually, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say, well, thank you. Thank you for remembering that when I'm around, I don't appreciate that because you are actually attacking my Lord and Savior when you use swear words about him. And it offends me because he's precious in my eyes. It'd be just like if you were talking about my mother or someone else's mother. You don't do that. But you have to have the boldness and courage not to come across as a judgmental Bible thumper standing on your soapbox. You still have the principle of doing it in love and care. Love and truth. It says also, help the weak, 
and be patient with everyone. That not everyone who is maybe lazy is lazy because of their own initiative. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they need help. Maybe they need encouragement. Maybe they need friendship. And so Paul says, be that person to them. Encourage them. Lift them up. Be that person that comes alongside of them and helps the weak. See, there are times when every one of us is weak. And I know that, oh, I, you know, I broke my toe two weeks ago, and it was amazingly painful, amazingly hurtful, and it has taken longer to get better this time than the other two times I broke it, because this toe I've broken three times. It, I, it, it's my fault. Uh, and each time that I've broken my, my toe, man, it takes a little bit longer to get over that broken toe. It takes a little bit longer to heal. And this epiphany just came to me over the last week. I'm no longer 18 years old. And when I broke a toe when I was 18, bam, two days later, I was running, jumping, kicking with it again. But man, when I start getting over 30-ish, over, I'm like, man, this is, something's not working the way it used to. And I'm realizing that everyone goes through this natural process of slowly getting weaker. And so you might say, oh, Tim, I don't think this is talking about me. I'm, I'm pretty strong. I'm in the prime of my life. I got news for you. That prime of the life decays, falls apart, gets sore, and is very hard to heal. And it's going to happen to all of us if God gives us the grace to stay here in this world any longer. So we will all be part of needing to be taken care of because we are weak. How nice it would be for you to set an example and standard for everyone around you of how you take care of the weak right now. Because maybe that's how you'll be taken care of later in life. He continues and says in that same vein, be patient with everyone. Oh, my beautiful thing of being patient. And make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Two wrongs never make a right. You know that from grade school. But oh, how we love to try and seek vengeance upon someone who has hurt us. When someone hurts us, what is the Christian response to someone hurting us? We can actually have two acceptable answers, and I think they need to be combined. One is you love and forgive, okay? You love and forgive. The other one, which is just as acceptable and I think needs to be part of this, is you need to talk to them about it and say, what you did hurt me, and it was wrong. And if you go there with love and mercy in your mind and not vengeance of pounding it into them, I think you will win a brother or sister in Christ in that moment of tension and conflict as opposed to alienate them and remove them from your friends list. It is so much better and productive to work it out through communication and love and forgiveness. So be patient with one another. Don't pay back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else.
Imagine a nation who put this into practice. Imagine a family that put this into practice. We're here to get the best out of you, not what I can get out of you. Oh. I mean, there's, there's moments in our lives where we have this, and they're beautiful moments. Paul says we can live like this with every relationship, with every person, at work, at school, at home, in our neighborhoods. We can be like this. But it starts in the household of God. It starts with us treating each other this way, with us respecting each other this way, with us honoring each other, with us loving one another like this. And then he goes on and says in verse 16 and 17, all the way through verse 18, actually, 16, 17, 18, super short verses, says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, how many times have you wondered to yourself, what is God's will for my life? What is my God's will for this situation? Should I take this job or should I not take this job? Should I be in this relationship or not be in this relationship? Should I go to this movie with my friends or not go to the movie with my friends? Now, for those of you that don't know what going to the movies are, is long ago we used to get into a car and we would actually spend time in that car, go to a building that would show a movie on this huge screen, much like we're doing now. We're basically kind of like in an old-fashioned movie theater. They used to have those in the day. How do, oh, I was on to something. Oh, should I go to this movie or not? What is God's will for my life? If you ever ask me that question, we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 and read these verses together. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're going to start with the number one God's will for you. It's this. Having a mature relationship with God that involves spiritual disciplines like prayer. So my question will be, tell me about your prayer life. You want to find out what God's will is? Tell me about your prayer life. How's it going? How frequent is it? Is it filled with a list of do this, do this, do this, God, for me? Or is it filled with, God, you've done this. You're amazing. You are a star in my life. You are the champion in my world. Is it praises to him or a list of wishes? Because I'll tell you, it's hard to find God's will in your life when all you're doing is wishing things from him. I want it better and different. It also combines with this idea of rejoicing always. Now, this is not always singing. Rejoicing is having a joyful contentment in your character, a joyful contentment. Do you have that all the time? Well, no, okay, we need to work on that. In order to find God's will, you're going to have to work on rejoicing always, which means you have to be much more of an optimist in life than a pessimist in life. Things aren't going to always get bad. Things can get good. Now, it's not ignoring reality, but you have to have this mindset that I'm with my God in a relationship. I already have everything I need. Awesome. Amen. Thank you, God. Praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. Every single day of every moment. You have a relationship with him. You have a reason to rejoice. I know your car broke down. I totally understand it. It's a bummer, and, it, and it's going to cost money, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be inconvenient. But you know what? You have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will never go away. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. What a great day. And no one can take that joy away from you. They can take the joy of a car away from you. Absolutely. They can take the joy of a relationship. 
They can take a joy of a parent's love away from you. Death does that. But your joy in Christ can never be taken away from you. That is 100% your responsibility. And if you don't have it, it's on you. You cannot tell me so-and-so made you not rejoice today. No, 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 no. You have the role and responsibility and ability to rejoice every single day throughout that entire day. That's how I think Job, that saint in the Old Testament, was able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I cannot imagine what he went through. He had every reason to say, I'm having a terrible day and curse God and not rejoice and not pray. He had every excuse. All of his kids died. All of his... uh, Son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws died. All of his property was stolen. His body was ravished by disease. All within a matter of what seems like, in chapter 1, less than an hour he gets all this news. And his response is rejoicing. In a subtle way, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If Job can do that when his life was honestly turned upside down. You can do it when someone slights you at the grocery store and gets in line ahead of you. You can. You absolutely can. Even those people who are driving slow, I can. Be patient with them and rejoice. He continues and says in verse 19 through 22, and we're going to go a little bit quick here, some principles for spiritual living. Do not, because it's not all about external things. There's some internal things here as well that we have to work on in our character. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit or do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Basically, that imagery in the Greek is don't take a blanket and cover the Holy Spirit. So when you have sometimes an impression, how do I know the Holy Spirit is speaking to me? It's not through an audible voice or through speaking in tongues. It's through generally the impressions that God puts on your heart and mind. Oh, I should do that or I should do this or I should... Look, you know, talk to that person. Is generally movement of impressions upon someone. I'm supposed to respond to that and not reject it. The number of times, and this happens to us often here on a, as a church staff when we have people come up to the door asking for stuff. It happens all the time. And you have to make a real quick judgment call. Do I invest myself in this person? Or is this a, all right, you, you need to leave kind of situation? And each one is different, each one is unique, and each one is just as valid. But you have to make that judgment call pretty quick as you're talking to someone. And every time I have listened to God when he said, spend time, it has been a joyful moment in my life. And I remember every face that I spent time with like that. And there have been times where God says, no, this is, this is, not, this is not right. And and, and sometimes I mess that up and I get them mixed up. And boy, do I feel bad when I go home at the end of the day and go, man, Lord, you, you, you really wanted me to help them and I, I didn't have the time. And I have learned over years of experience of listening to the Holy Spirit in those moments. And I urge you to take that same, same lookout on life is take those moments when the Lord is leading you to do something or to talk to someone, do it. Don't, don't stifle it. Don't wetten it. Don't hide it under a blanket. 
Do not treat prophecies, verse 20 of 1 Thessalonians 5, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So Paul is saying, we use the word prophecy, and we have to be very careful because when we say prophecy, we think the definition is always someone predicting future events. Okay? That's not how Scripture uses the word prophecy in most times. Most times it uses the word prophecy as declaring God's truth. And in fact, well, well throughout church history, when someone came up to preach, like the moment that we're doing right now, it's considered prophesying. And they would, the word preaching has only been more of a common use of word. It used to be called, oh, you're going to go prophesy. It's declaring God's truth. It's not predicting the future and hoping the future comes to pass, that I'm predicting. It's not fortune-telling. And so when Paul says, when you hear prophecy, when you hear the declaration of God's truth, don't treat it with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. So he says you need to be like Bereans in Acts uh, 17. Or is it 17, not 15? Uh, 15 is a Jerusalem council. So in Acts 17, where the Bereans listened to Paul, but searched the scriptures to see what he said was true. So it's a good thing when someone is up speaking or singing that you put your mental thinking cap on, not just waiting for funny stories to laugh at, but is this really truth? Has God really said? That's how Jesus responded to the devil, didn't he? Did God really, or the question of, did God really say this? And Jesus goes, well, what does Scripture say? Let's actually go to Scripture. And so this is Paul's way of saying, hey, when you hear something on the radio or you read something online or you see that meme that talks about this is what Christianity is all about, test it. Test it. You have the tools for it. You're one of God's children. You don't need a theological degree in order to test it. You're one of God's children. What does Scripture say? Yeah, you might have to look, use Google to look up an answer, but that's fine. But you know how to figure that out. You're thinking, people. You can figure that out. Paul says that needs to be part of your character. Make sure you are doing this. And lastly, in verse 23 and 24, and then he comes to the conclusion, Paul has this prayer that he prays for the church, and I think he prays it for us as well. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Paul wants the church. He wants us. God wants us to be more and more holy, more and more like him, more and more like Jesus. And so Paul is stressing the point time and time again, you have to be a growing, maturing believer. You have to be growing and maturing. There's no resting and saying, I'm done, I'm already there. There isn't any of that. We are always being sanctified and set apart and improved upon. All of us are being improved upon. And Paul just simply says, keep going at it. You need to do it. And don't worry if you feel like you can't because it's Jesus who's going to do it in your life. 
Never think for a moment that your relationship is based on the do's and don'ts. It's still always based on, did Jesus do it? Yes. Is it accomplished? Yes. He's going to take care of it. But we have to give ourselves trustingly and in faith to His working in our life. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. You know, sometimes, well, oftentimes, God just boggles my mind. I don't understand Him. And He says, you need to do this. Do it, do it, do it. Oh, but Christ is doing it for you. It's not contrary or contradictory. It's encouraging. Because there are times where I feel weak and defeated. And my presence before God and my relationship is not based upon my weakness or defeatness that day. It's based upon Christ. And I need to always come back to, you need to come back to that picture time and time again. Christ has done this on your behalf. Live in it. Live in the truth of it. Live in the fact of it. Live in the reality of it. That's what Paul is saying. The one who calls you is faithful. Do it, do it, do it. Christ has done it. I can be at rest and at peace. And then he ends in verse 25 through 28 with this true fellowship statement. He says, brothers and sisters, the last time he says this to them, pray for us. Paul often mentions, pray for us. Because you can get into your mind, Paul's this amazing apostle and evangelist, he's so close to God, why would he need us to pray for him? Well, he tells us in Ephesians because he's scared. He's scared and weak. He doesn't know what to say. So pray for him. I would covet your prayers. There's not a person here that would not covet your prayers. Would you like to have 100 people praying for you? Absolutely. Well, pray. Pray for us. That's one of the things of this fellowship that we have together. Greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. Ooh, kind of difficult today, but let's check back in a month or so and we'll see what's going on there. But it was a very culturally accepted thing. It was not a sexual thing. It was much like a fist pump high five or a pat on the backside. It was, it's still done in European countries, I think, where they, mm, each, uh, whatever. That's their thing. We can't do that right now. And please, and I had someone do this to me, and please don't do this, come up and just lay a big wet kiss on my forehead after I preached uh, through this in Romans. So please just avoid that today. Avoid it at all times. Uh, then lastly, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul understood the importance of God's Word. Now, maybe he didn't understand he was writing God's Word at the moment, but he knew that God was moving through him by the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, that this should be communicated. This is the communication that God has for us. And so, like I said a couple weeks ago, there's no apology that I'll ever make for making sure God's Word is front and central in a message. No apology ever. In fact, you should expect it. And if it doesn't happen, you should say, Tim, what was that about? I could have gotten that anywhere. I came to church to get a message about Jesus 
and what he's done and what I now can do in his name. So I want to leave you with one take home, that there is no law or tradition that draws us closer to God, but lawless lives demonstrate no relationship with God. We need to keep that in mind so that we are not confused about all of these things. We, we talked about, I think it was 11 different things that we can put into practice, or, or 12. 11 or 12 different things from this text. That's a lot to take in. That's more than the Ten Commandments. So what do I focus on? I focus on reminding myself that I'm not in a relationship with God because I'm obedient to the law. Jesus did that. But if I have nothing in my life to reflect that relationship, that's a very dangerous place to be in. It demonstrates a lawlessness. It demonstrates no relationship with God if I don't have those characteristics. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful and thankful that you've put us into a relationship through Jesus Christ, that you maintain that relationship through Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to demonstrate to the world around us and to our families that the relationship we claim to have is indeed true and genuine through our actions. Thank you for saving us by faith and faith alone. And thank you that this faith that has saved us is never alone, that it is always accompanied by the works of righteousness that you have implanted in us. And in Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Don't forget, as you leave today, to sign those cards for our